preaching tonight, I'm back in faith that shakes, but last Wednesday night, I heard, and I heard the podcast, Valerie knocked it out of the park. Am I right? I thought it was fantastic. Listen to the podcast while I was still out of town, and uh, she did a great job. I think she ought to teach more, don't you? Yeah. She said, I got to pay more. The... uh, and then this past Sunday, we had uh, Brother Bustard with us, and wow, man, was that powerful or what? That was an amazing day, amazing Sunday. And there's some special things taking place at LifePoint. It is an exciting time to be part of LifePoint. I mean, I never know who's going to walk through the door every Sunday. I walk out here, I don't know half the people. It's just been incredible, and God's touching and changing lives uh, as never before. It's not all about numbers, but numbers represent people. And and I heard one fella say, I heard one fella say, we count numbers because because we count people. We get numbers because every soul uh, that you know God saves is one less soul the devil gets. And I love that. I love that. So like everyone we can get, we want. So anyhow, it's going to be a great day this Sunday, and then Sunday night, and then Monday prayers. First week, it's going to be a great time. We are in Faith That Shakes, part 43, and we are looking at Acts 26. This is part two. I sure was hoping we would finish Acts 26 tonight and get into Acts 27, but alas, we won't make it. We will finish Acts 26, but we will not make it to Acts 27. So I want to say a prayer as we get into it. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this beautiful little book. It's not so little, Lord, but this this book of Acts that we have been going through. And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, reveal truth that's in there to us, and we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. Now, in part 42, we looked at, <clears throat> we left off where the super important people, the upper echelon, came into the auditorium, Festus, King Agrippa II, Bernice, the elites, the specials of Caesarea. And they walked in with pomp and circumstance. And then Paul enters into that auditorium as a prisoner in chains. Agrippa said to him, you may speak. It was just so arrogant. Paul gestures and says, okay, I'm happy to be here standing before you today. He was fulfilling the call of God on his life, and he was fulfilling what Jesus had spoken to him about his call and what Ananias had been told, that he would stand before the kings of his day and Gentiles. Here he is fulfilling that. He was telling the absolute worst of humanity, because we looked at how bad these cats were, He was telling the absolute worst of humanity about the best of divinity. And he was letting them in on the secret. They too could believe on the name above all names. And as he gets into this this, uh, situation and is beginning to tell the Jesus story, he tells his story, his own story, the story of his conversion. And that's where we're going to pick it up. In verse 9, and we'll go through 11 here. 
Indeed, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut, in, shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them, often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul had been working against the name of Jesus, just like the religious Jews who had dogged his steps. He says as much when he says in verse 11, I was exceedingly enraged against believers, against the Christians. And Paul can even relate to these Roman elites because although they were passive at best or complicit at worst in the persecution of the Christians, it was because of them that the Christians had suffered. So be it religious Jews or political Romans, they all worked together to make the lives of Christians miserable. And so what Paul is saying to this motley crew before him, although they are the elites, he is saying, I sat right where you were sitting. I chased down Jesus, people I didn't understand it, like the religious Jews, like the political Romans. And, and he, he starts telling his story. He, he talks about when he was a Christian hunter, right? He was a Christian hunter. You've heard of Nazi hunters. You've heard of house hunters. He was a Christian hunter. He hunted down Christians, and it was like a job to him. It was an occupation to him. Notice verses 12 through 15, while thus occupied. That's an occupation. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, notice, He starts to zero in on King Agrippa. O king, at midday, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, all of us, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's a good word with friends, word, goad. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, we learn more about Paul's conversion during this recitation of his testimony than any other place that he talks about 
his conversion. We see that he saw a physical light before he saw the light, the light of the world spiritually. And we see that his traveling companions saw this physical light also. So this light shines on him. He sees it physically. And so do his companions. And they all fell to the ground. Only Paul heard the voice. Interestingly, the Lord speaks to him in the Hebrew tongue, not in Greek, not in Aramaic, speaks to him in Hebrew. Only Paul converses with Jesus. So they can't hear, apparently, the voice of Jesus, but they hear Paul, Saul at the time, speaking. Maybe he goes into Hebrew, talking to Jesus. So he's talking in the middle of the light. And then he's told that he would be delivered from the Jews and also from the Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, there's going to be a need for him to be delivered from the Jews, and there's going to be a need for him to be delivered from the Gentiles. But we also see that he would be sent to the Gentiles. And here's the key. Why would he be sent to the Gentiles? Verse 16 tells us to be a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen of the things and of the things of which I will yet reveal to you. Now, who would minister the message? What he had seen and what he would see? He, he would minister the message. He would minister the message of what he had seen and what he would see. In other words, it would be something that would be future, a revelation, a revelation. So what he had seen with his physical eyes and then what would be revealed to him as a result of his continuing education, his Discover Life program, right? He would, he, would, he would minister this message. Here's another way to look at it. He would administer what he had seen and what he would be shown. He would administer it. And he would do this, he would do this with tact, with deafness, with wisdom, with excellence. Paul was a master soul winner. I want to address this for just a moment. Paul was a masterful soul winner. We've talked about it before. We've seen him in action. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, I think sometimes we, we, we get the cart before the horse. We'll take these verses and uh, kind of think that maybe we should freak out on people when we're sharing the word. Look at this. Second, or first, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. Isn't this exciting? Are you with me? Can you? You with me? You with me. I know you with me. Verse 1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, and we know the story of when he came to them, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching we're not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Acts, this does not mean that Paul did not relate to his audience, find common ground, 
as I said, he was a master soul winner. To the Gentiles, I became as a Gentile. To the Greeks, as a Greek. To the Romans, to the Jews, as a Jew. He was a masterful soul winner. So this is not about him freaking out on people and rolling his eyes back in his head and speaking in tongues when he came across different people groups. Not at all. What does this mean then? 1 Corinthians 2 is all about Paul refusing to compromise and just become a lecturer, a debater, a rhetorician, a TED talk guy, right? This is less about him just being a good communicator and this is more about Paul staying true to his calling which we see in Acts 26. His calling was to be a minister or to administer the message to an audience. Are you with me? He would find a way to get the message to the The message was key. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't speak in tongues. He said, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I wish everybody uh, spoke in tongues like I speak in tongues. It doesn't mean he didn't have these ecstatic moments, but what it meant was he stayed true to the message. How does this apply to us? Here's the deal. We go after people. We seek out common ground. We attempt to create an excellent experience for anyone who drives onto this property for sure. We work to create a hope-filled, encouraging, attractive atmosphere. First impressions are huge around here. We roll up our sleeves so we can roll out the red carpet. If you've not gotten involved on a team, let me invite you. Get involved. Help us roll out red carpet to people so they feel welcome like you have felt welcome. Get involved. We're big on that, man. We like to work hard to respect everybody, no matter what their background is, socioeconomic status background is. Uh, the color of their skin, their, their, uh, whoever they are. And the reason why is because people matter. Jesus is first. People matter. But we're on a mission to get Jesus to people. We're not on a mission to impress people with our music and our stuff. The bottom line at the end of the day is we are trying to administer the message of Jesus to people. It's all about administering, ministering, communicating, getting it across. How God showed out on a cross. How he showed out in a borrowed tomb. And how he showed out in the upper room with the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So Paul was not only called to minister the message, but he was called to be a witness. So I'm spending a little time on this. He was called to minister the message, but he was also called to be a witness. Everybody say a witness. 400 years before Paul, Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, who was the student of Socrates, taught that there were two kinds of proof. Aristotle taught two kinds of proof. Probable proof and necessary proof. These are the basis for what we know as circumstantial evidence 
and irrefutable evidence. The Greek word for witness is used here and calls to mind this irrefutable evidence of which Aristotle taught. It's the Greek word transliterated to martyr in our language. Paul does not look to the light that he experienced and his compadres experienced as the irrefutable evidence on the road to Damascus, which would have been pretty doggone credible. In other words, what I'm saying is, He experienced it, and he could say, I experienced it. But then you have these guys that didn't even believe they saw it too. That would be an evidence, right? That would be pretty stout evidence that something happened on the road to Damascus. They could say, they could corroborate it, and they could say, yes, indeed, there was a bright light. We heard him talking in the middle of the light, and we didn't understand what was going on. But he didn't point to that. He he really didn't use that as as the irrefutable evidence, although he could have. And he doesn't even look to the, to the resurrection of Jesus, the historical evidence for that in his uh, assessment of what is irrefutable and what is not. Although that would have been pretty doggone credible because as he's going to say in a moment, Agrippa, you know what happened. You saw what happened. It didn't happen in a corner. You were aware of what happened with this Jesus of Nazareth. But he's not looking to that to be the irrefutable evidence. That's not it at all. Incidentally, if you want to get some irrefutable evidence, do we have those pictures back there? If you want to get some uh, good evidence, the case for Christ, read this book, Lee Strobel. Get it on audio. Read this. Great, great book from a man who didn't believe, who became a believer. Another great book, and this one helped me out in my quest way back in the day, evidence that demands a verdict. There's a new and updated version of it, and there's more evidence that demands a verdict, and evidence that demands a verdict too. And uh, Josh McDowell helped me tremendously uh, in, in my college years when I was struggling with my faith. Get these books. These are great books. Oh, but, but on the other hand, although you can find the historical evidence, and you can get empirical evidence, and you can get philosophical evidence for the, the case for Christ, and and, and the fact that God exists. Paul takes the irrefutable and, and, and points it at himself. He says, this is, here's, here's the witness that I bring to you today, people of the jury. He says, I had a radical change in my own life. I did not believe, but then I became a believer. The irrefutable evidence that Jesus was and is who he claims to be is not all this stuff I could point to. The only thing I point to is what a difference he has made in my life. He turned my life around. I am the witness. He called me to be a witness. But listen, Jesus said it in Acts 1.8. Jesus said that, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses, that's the word, irrefutable evidence to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The believers themselves become the irrefutable evidence that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he was going to do. Now, 
Let me throw out some balance because I can't help but think like this. I, I think these things through. And on the one hand, anecdotal evidence. Everybody say anecdotal. Anecdotal evidence. Like I got a story to tell. And, and, and anecdotal evidence on one hand is so unreliable. People, people will say, I had a dream that I should, you know, uh, anoint myself with oil and say lollipop, lollipop, lollipop and start a church and marry this guy's wife, right? Something ignorant like that. And, and they may have had a dream that exactly said that. But that is anecdotal. It's just something that happened. And it was probably bad pizza, uh, a hangover, whatever, you know. It didn't mean that's a, a word from God for them to do that. Or they may have an experience. They see a vision. They hear a voice. And that anecdotal evidence is, is what they act upon. Uh, that, that There's people that do that all the time. They have religious ideations that are whatever, just some experience that they had. And so on one hand... Anecdotal evidence is not reliable. You've heard me say on a regular basis, your experience and my experience neither validates nor invalidates the word. People say, I've never spoken in tongues, therefore I don't believe in speaking in tongues. And other people say, I speak in tongues, therefore I believe in speaking in tongues. So do either of those claims validate or invalidate the word? The word stands whether we believe it or not. It used to be those bumper stickers, you know, that said, uh, the word says it, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that sounded great, fine and dandy, but it's really not. It's the word says it, that settles it. What I have to do with it is nothing, you know. The word says it, that settles it. And so, so anecdotal evidence on the one hand is totally unreliable. However, I learned in my days outside of Christianity um, how... Much people relied on that. Uh, back when I was dancing on the fringes of cults and Eastern mysticism and and whatever, uh, you know, there were all kinds of experiences that people people had these experiences and and made life decisions and altering uh, life altering changes based on those experiences. But on the other hand, I got to tell you. You can argue doctrine all you want, but you really can't argue experience. And you don't know like I know what God has done for me. I mean, you can slam my experience, but at least I've had one. You know what I'm saying? Like, Paul's God experience, and this is important, was based on and the result of word. And God experiences are based on word. They they are generated from word. The the 12 apostles uh, had had experiences that were based on what Jesus said would happen. Go tarry in the the upper room in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. So they had a, a fulfillment of word in their life, which was an experience, so their experience was based on word. Here's an order of things. In the Greek, I don't want to get too heavy here, but like just bear with me. In the Greek, there's this word called kerygma. The kerygma is the body that, of the message 
of Jesus that was preached by the apostles. And then there's the dunamis, the dunamis, the dunamis, the power of God. We see the power of God referred to over and over. The lame man received power to walk. They received power when the Holy Ghost came upon them, the power of God. The charisma and the dunamis. Here's the deal. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? I got some new tennis shoes. Did you see that? No joke. Had some friends in town yesterday. We're walking around, and the shoes I was wearing broke. Both shoes broke. I said, you got to be kidding me. These sorry shoes. You know where I bought them? Canada. I said, this is unbelievable. So I ran in a store. I bought these shoes. They were on sale, and I threw my big old shoes uh, in, in the trash. I was so mad. But anyhow, I digress. What was I saying? Oh, my goodness. Dunamis. 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 Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You've got, I, 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 Valley's got this big old SUV with big old V8 motor in it. It's like powerful. You know, it's awesome. I got a little bitty car. She's got this big old powerful motor in that car. And if, there, if, if I wanted to buy a boat, which I do, Wesley, if I wanted to buy a boat and I wanted to drag that boat with that SUV, then somehow I'm going to have to transfer the power that is in the hood of that car back to the trailer holding the boat to get it to go down the road. Like in the, in, in the laws of physics, somehow that power has got to go from here in the SUV back to the boat for me to move that boat with the SUV. And there is a mechanism that is perfectly designed, Dressa, to help me get that, that power. I'm not a scientist, but like this is, this is how it works. There's a, there's a device. It's called a hitch, a trailer hitch, a receiver, a ball, and and. You can you can put Darren, you can put that you can put that that trailer on that hitch, and what's happening is the power that's under that hood is transferred, and that boat is gonna move down the road at 60 miles an hour, just like that SUV. And and so here's the deal: we've got this dunamis, the power of God, and we're wanting to connect it into our lives. I want to have some practical application. Well, how am I? How do you get the power of God into your life? Faith. You've got to connect. And where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing the word. So those apostles would preach the word. Faith would come. And as a result of the faith, the power of God, they would connect to the power of God. And whatever the word said they could have, that power of God would make sure it took place in their lives. It connected. And so, so what I'm saying is you've got this anecdotal evidence and stuff like that. It's, some of it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, but on the other hand, when you believe the word, you'll have experiences that come from that word, that come from the power of God that will alter your life forever. And you can say, now I can't argue all those doctrines, but I can tell you this, like that old blind man said, well, all I know is once I was blind... But now I see. I'm not the same man I used to be. How many of you have been changed by Jesus? That is irrefutable evidence. 
That's irrefutable evidence. So Paul is a minister and a witness. He administers this message, but he's also living proof. And to whom is he sent? This is awesome. Remember, he was sent to the Gentiles. Remember, I'll deliver you from the Jews. I'll deliver you from the Gentiles, but I'll send you to the Gentiles. And that's exactly who he's speaking in front of in this chapter. King Agrippa II, Bernice, Festus, the elites of Caesarea. They're all Gentiles. And what is the purpose of this ministry and witnessing? I love this. He looks at them eyeball to eyeball, and he says, this is what the Lord said. I'm sent to you. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what he's saying to the whole lot of them is this. You can't see. You're blind as a bat. You live in darkness. You're under the power and influence of Satan, and you're full of sin. And I have been sent to give you the opportunity to get your sight to get delivered, to get the forgiveness of sins. I've been sent to you to bring you Jesus. It's amazing. Paul was a cat who was strong and brave. In verses 19 through 20, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, do the works befitting Repentance. Notice, you can't turn to God without repenting. Hebrews 6 talks about first steps. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God. And then subsequently, he says, works befitting repentance. Well, what's that? Well, we could say, For starters, being water baptized. Charlene and Ariel on Sunday, that was awesome, was it not? Wow, yes, beautiful. Wasn't that beautiful? I loved it. Works befitting repentance. Paul did that in Acts 9. He was filled with the Spirit as well. But, but I don't think this is specifically what he's referring to here. I think the repent and turn to God portion included all those first steps. Probably the works that he's referring to are his, uh, the, the, the things that he did in his preaching, in his preaching ministry. Being a witness for the last 20 years or so, a minister. Uh, verses 21 through 23, as much as says this, For these reasons the Jews seized me, in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Again, it's interesting, Paul has an exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament. He has memorized the whole thing. So he throws out this, the prophets and Moses, and he hits the resurrection of the dead, but he says Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead. Now, first means there's others coming. Am I correct? So he was the first, but there's others that are coming. 
Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And, and he wasn't the first to ever be raised from the dead, right? Jesus raised people from the dead. In the Old Testament, there were people that were raised from the dead. Oh, but the resurrection of Jesus was different. He was the first fruits of the resurrection of the just, right? That had never happened. Old Lazarus would die again. But Jesus rose alive forevermore. Oh, and there's a day coming when the second and the third and the rest of us, hey, they're not going to get their reward before us. Now, they may go over and cross over and be with the Lord, but at the same time, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and, and will meet them in the air and forever will be with the Lord. So he was the first, but there's a whole bunch of us coming. We used to sing that old song, there is going to be a meeting in the air. In that sweet, sweet by and by. The old song leader would do this. There's going to be a. And I forgot the words on the sky. Never heard by mortal ears. Thank you. Wow, fewer people know this. But God's own son will be the leading one in that meeting in the air. My song leader, Brother Scott, would get riled up and he'd say, Oh, there's a going to do it again, you know. Yeah. Well, there is. There is a meeting coming. But Jesus was the first. He was the first one that was raised from the dead. And so at that phrase, Festus, told you about Festus Hagen. That's what it reminds me of. Festus lost it. Verse 24. Now, as he made, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You have lost touch with reality. You are insane. Now, obviously, Paul was highly intelligent, educated, erudite, scholarly, schooled in rhetoric, brilliant, undoubtedly a genius, but Festus thought he was crazy. Guzik gives several points, the reasons why, though a prisoner in chains, he said he was happy. I'm happy to be standing here today. Chink, chink, chink. He insisted that God could raise the dead. He experienced a heavenly vision that changed his life. He was more concerned about proclaiming Jesus than his personal freedom. He believed in a message of hope and redemption for all humanity, not only Jews, but also Gentiles. The gospel, when it is properly lived, will make people think we are crazy. But Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Ever been accused of being crazy? There were times some of us were accused of being crazy when we were. And there were other times when we were accused of being crazy when we finally got it together. It's like the maniac at Gadara. Naked in the tombs. Everybody was okay with that craziness. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Something's wrong with you. Verse 25, 
But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also freely speak knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Again, he's zeroing in. I know that you do believe. What is he saying? He's saying, I am quite sane. I have not left I have not taken leave of my senses. I am saying most noble Festus throws out that accolade. But the words I speak, they are full of truth and reason. And Agrippa, if you'll remember, was an expert in all things Jewish. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He knew the Jewish scripture, the culture. He believed the prophets, even though he lived... Like the devil. There are people that believe the scriptures but live like the devil. And Paul knows it. This man lives like the devil. I mean, he's married to his sister wife, right? If you miss that, that's Bernice was his sister and his girlfriend. He was messed up. He lived like the devil. He was known. He was a Herod. He was Agrippa came from a lineage that killed Jesus and John the Baptist and little boys when Jesus was born. An absolute disaster of a family tree. But he believed the prophets. He had spent enough time around the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing. He had heard the scriptures and he understood there's something true here. And he knew the Jesus story. Paul's calling him out on it. He knew the Jesus story. This wasn't done in a corner. This wasn't a secret. You saw it go down. You know there's something to it. Paul brilliantly brings all that he has said to a point of decision. He says, Agrippa, king, listen to me. I know you believe the prophets, and if you believe the prophets, you have to believe in this Jesus that I serve. And that's exactly, that's exactly what was happening. Agrippa was believing. Look at verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. Almost ain't good enough, right? Almost turning from blindness to being able to see. Almost turning from darkness to light. Almost turning from the power of Satan to the power of God and to eternal life. But almost is not good enough. You almost persuaded me is what he said. As if, man, I got so close. Isn't that a good thing? No, it's a horrible thing. You saw it. It was right before you. And you said, no. You made a decision, all right. And the answer was no. You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Paul says he... He says, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up. In other words, he had had enough, right? The pressure's it's hot. You know, he, 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 had, he had put it on and finally he stands up. Oh, yep, uh, Okay, well, we're done here. Stands up. And when he did, of course, the governor, Bernice, all those that were with him stood up. 
And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves. This man has, is doing nothing deserving of death or change. Agrippa said to Festus, this man have been set free. He could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's just crazy. You almost persuaded me. Why did Agrippa say no? That's my question. Why didn't he say yes? First of all, it gives me hope. This is Paul, not Donovan. If D.H. was preaching and he would have almost been persuaded, that's understandable. This is Paul. God called to be a minister, to be a witness. The great apostle Paul memorized the entire Old Testament. Met with Jesus personally, met with the 12. This is Paul. Why did Agrippa almost be persuaded and not altogether? One answer was Bernice. She was sinful, immoral. She was his companion. He might have realized that if if I make a decision for Jesus... I may lose some of my friends, including my girlfriend, sister, girlfriend. And he wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Next to Agrippa was Festus. No nonsense. He thought Paul was crazy. Agrippa might have thought, if I become a Christian, Festus will think I'm crazy. Maybe Agrippa wanted the praises of men more than the praises of God. Spurgeon said, alas, how many are influenced by fear of men? Oh, you cowards, will you be damned out of fear? Will you sooner let your souls perish than show your manhood by telling a poor mortal that you defy his scorn? Dare you not follow the right through all men in the world, should call, though all men in the world should call you to do the wrong? Oh, you cowards, you cowards, how you deserve to perish who have not enough soul to call your souls your own, but cower down before the sneers of fools. It's pretty strong language. In front of Agrippa stood Paul, strong, noble, wisdom, but in chains. Maybe Agrippa thought if I become a Christian, I'll be like Paul. I'll be in chains. Again, Spurgeon said, Oh, that men were wise enough to see the suffering that suffering for Christ is honor, that loss for truth is gain, that the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than endure the chain upon the soul. And I love the fact that Paul just stood his ground, never moved, never budged an inch despite his long imprisonment, despite who was around him. And then he finally said, I wish you were all together like me, except for these chains. It was just dramatic, right? I wish you were like me, except he started with a gesture, he ends with a gesture. I wish you were almost and all together. I wish you were not just almost, but all together like me, except for chinky, chinky, chink these chains, but I'm free in here. You're free 
out there. And I look like I'm not, but I'm free in here. And one day, I'm going to fly away like a bird. And you're going to be all bound up. And the shoe's going to be reversed. There is a freedom in Jesus that you can't get. Paul was living for another day. And I guess that's our encouragement for the evening. Paul was living for another day. And Agrippa was living for the present. Oh, had he made the decision, I'm going to live for another day as well. What could have happened? How could the story have ended differently? But it didn't. But you and I have that opportunity. Won't we stand together right now? We have that opportunity to live for God now. I love that. Oh, that men were wise enough to see that suffering for Christ is honor, that loss for truth is gain, that the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than endure the chain upon the soul. Amen? Can you lift your hands to Him right now? Father, we're so grateful for Your wonderful Word, for these great stories tucked away that inspire and encourage us. And God, that provoke us to not stop short, but to be sold out, God, and take it all the way. What an encouragement, Lord Jesus, that we have in these wonderful scriptures, Lord.